now listening to The Prime Podcast, a show dedicated to exploring and investigating all things health, fitness, and performance related. When something is in its prime, it is at its best. This includes us as humans. Are you ready to take on the world? Then join us on this journey to live life in your prime. And welcome back to another episode of the Prime Podcast. I'm hanging out with Tori Rizzucci again today, hanging out. And we are looking at ways to help you find your prime as usual. Uh, So some of the things that we're going to talk about today, uh, there's so many different topics that come up on a week-to-week basis or a day-to-day basis inside and outside of the gym. And Tori takes a moment and goes through them and tries to figure out what would be the best thing to talk about for today. We have so many topics in addition, we are very excited for some a different guests that we're going to have coming up soon that we are going to touch upon some topics in a little bit more depth than we might be able to on our own or just give you a different perspective on the way that we look at things. So, Tori, how are you? Fantastic. How are you? Fantastic. She's <laughs> awake on a Friday afternoon. Hang alive. On. I am alive. So it makes it good. Everything's good. Good for all involved. Good for all that are involved. How was your week? My week was good. I finished school. That's why I'm I'm human again. Oh, she's a human. <laughs> she finished her semester in college. And the other day, Tori was like, should I take a few summer classes and graduate early and, or just have my summer off and do whatever? And my response was, do whatever is going to, you know, is, is am I, quite, I, re, I answered with a question. I said, is your, is graduating early going to make any difference in your life? And her answer was no. So I'd have a degree sooner that I wouldn't know what to do with. Exactly. That it's not going to change her career outcomes or anything, which brings us kind of to a side, a little sidebar on going to college. And if it's worth it, we were, I had another conversation with a member this morning whose daughter is graduating high school this year. And I asked her if she had plans to go on to college and she was like, oh, she's just going to hang out in the, the local community college at first before she kind of figures out what she's going to do. And then we started getting talking about what things you need a college degree for versus what things you don't really need a college degree for. And I think things are obviously changing at a very rapid rate right now. And I think a lot of colleges and universities are going to be struggling in the next three to five years. I heard somewhere that like some of these universities are taking out millions and millions of dollars of loans to stay afloat while people are studying remotely more and more because colleges are taking these things. Uh, they take room and board as a, as a huge revenue stream for them. And if they don't have that, it's going to be harder for colleges and our higher education system that exists right now to continue. So then I think the degrees that people get in the re in this, everyone has to go to college idea might be kind of fizzling out a little bit. I personally don't think everybody needs to, so. Tori is very anti-college. I mean, for certain things, like if you're, you know, a brain surgeon, please go to college. If, what do you mean? You don't want me just doing brain no, surgery? No, absolutely. You might, like, I did go to you're college, weird, though. so you have probably some expertise we don't know about. <laughs> I am weird, right? You heard it here first. You know, different things, so maybe. But, like, if you're doing that stuff, absolutely. Like, for you, do you think what you're doing now you'd had to go to college for. I don't think I had to go to college for it, but I think having, like, I think we talked about it before a little bit with the fundamental knowledge of anatomy. 
if I only took anatomy and physiology in a college setting, I think I would have been fine. Yeah. And I think if you were to, to create, and here's the other problem is that I think a lot of curriculums that are in college don't relate to what the real world actual job is. So I think if you were to create a, if I were to create a curriculum to have somebody be a strength and conditioning coach, it would have some very different things in there than you might see. I was working with one of our, our high school, my, one of the high school soccer girls that I work with. And I want to, and I want, I do more than coaching these, these athletes, right? I want to be a mentor to them. I want to help them do certain things. And I want to be able to have the, them have the freedom and autonomy to, or empowerment to ask me questions and be that sounding board for them. So we were talking and she asked, should I go to school for athletic training? And I was like, well, what do athletic trainers do? First, she couldn't answer that question. So she didn't know what an athletic trainer actually is. So then I was like, then why would you go to, a co go to college for something that you don't even know what it is? I said, athletic trainers are folks who are taping ankles and putting ice on people. You know, they're the intermediary between the strength and conditioning coach and the physical therapist or the, the actual doctor. So they're in between, like they're doing, they're sometimes doing the treatments. And she's like, oh, that doesn't sound very fun. I was like, no, it's not. So why would you go to school for that? Right. So, and then you start looking at the curriculums. Like I went to school for physical education. This is a super long sidebar. Anyway. <laughs> it's okay. I went to school for physical education. That's what she asked me what I went to school for. So in that setting, we did some anatomy, which was helpful. We did like the history of physical education, which is not very helpful. We did some childhood development things, which are helpful. But again, a lot of these things that like I would say probably 70% of the curriculum was a waste of time. 30% was valuable. And in a, in a job that you are in front of people and you have to think on your feet and you have to do all these things. The best thing to do, and I've heard that people do this in certain teaching education preparation programs, is they do their student teaching first. Like, so you can go to three and a half years of school and then go do, into your student teaching and be like, man, I really hate teaching. <laughs> <laughs> so you just wasted three and yeah. a half years of school. Like if you went in the first, first semester and you did your student teaching and you like, you were an intern or did whatever with that program. And you're like, oh, this is really great. Now I need to go. It's kind of like a backwards approach. And I think if you did that and then did all the skill sets and things you were like, hey, I, was, I sucked at those. And then you went and did student teaching again in a couple of years after you learned some of the skills that you needed to do that and the knowledge that you needed to do that. I think that'd be a much more valuable thing. Just like if you were marketing. Like if you went and did a marketing internship right off the bat and first understood how much you didn't know, you'd be so much more inclined to learn things. Mm -hmm. Like I, when you don't, when you don't know what you don't know, you just do whatever. And I think that carries over to all this different stuff in terms of strength, conditioning, health, fitness, and wellness, especially nutrition. When you don't know what you don't know, you don't, you don't do it because, and you don't have a, a incentive to change or to learn more. So I think if you were to initiate your educational experience with some sort of formal internship, instead of ending with it, I think you would have a better avenue and a better idea of like, hey, or if you came, even if you, and you come back to your, your teachers who are creating this curriculum, be like, there's none of this stuff. I didn't do, I didn't see any of this stuff for three months. So why are we learning it? And I think it would uh, force educators to be a little bit more in tune with what's actually happening in the field. Yeah. Like my curriculum is being in business. 
that's my degree. There's nothing valuable so far that I've found. And you see business every day because you're with me and you yeah. hang out. So you see some things that you're like, this isn't how things work. And then it in turn makes me want to blow off the assignments. Cause I'm like, I already, not that like, not to be cocky, but like, I already know, like, why am I writing about this when I, when we could be so much more hands-on for sure. So, and even at school, I think at our, and at the high school that I work at, there's a photo video department. And one of the things that I had, I, you know, I talk in random thoughts and different things like that, because I have a lot of thoughts about different things. Like I'm a brain surgeon on the side too. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things that I thought would be very valuable is to teach people how to use social media. All social media is, is taking photos and videos and editing them and putting there and putting your best foot forward. So why not? And then if you have a business department, why not team up and be like, Hey, have this audio video department, team up with the business department, create a business, create an Instagram account, get followers. And then maybe your culminating activity for the semester or a couple times, maybe a quarter, every marking period, you can do a culminating activity where the, that marketing that, you know, the marketing department has to work with the content creation department to create something that it could be in school. It doesn't even have to be an outward public thing, but let's say it's a art show at the school mm -hmm. and you have creative content, like the kids are painters or whatever. Then you could have photo video people create content that promotes it in the school to get people there to sell tickets and create a business around that. That would be the most valuable thing you could do because you're actually putting it into action. And yep. as we know through James Clear and all the things we ever talk about is action and repetition is what's going to help you get better at the thing, not just talking about it. And you're not handing out flyer start shows anymore. Nobody's going to show up. Might as well put it on social media and advertise. Well, I mean, there is still some of that. I still think if you, if we were to, we should, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if it, what would happen. But if we had a bunch of flyers and we went out every every Tuesday and we put a flyer on everyone's windshield in Hannaford parking lot, mm -hmm. what would happen? We should do it. If you got 10 leads out of that, it would be worth it. Oh, absolutely. So I think there is still something to be said about that old school type marketing, but I, but for sure, if you're doing photo video stuff, you should be social media. You should be learning how to, Hey, how do I make this for Instagram? How do I make this for, you know, TikTok or Snapchat or whatever? But that's a sidebar. We got into marketing off of school and education, and now we're, we're back at it. And how does this all relate to finding your prime and helping you live your best life in terms of health, wellness, and fitness? I'm going to start with the hot topic. Sure. The most common one that you said you are experiencing with our members is overcoming back, knee, hip pain, those major areas, and how and when you should tackle those. All right. So fill in the blank injury or fill in the blank pain. And we have a couple different ways that people get into pain. And I think we've talked about it a couple of times, but the, there's either a mobility restriction or a stability issue. So either you can't get into a proper position. So things are too tight and you can't get there, or you can get into a proper position, but you can't control it. First, you have to do is figure out which, which end of the spectrum you live in. Now, if you know you can't touch your toes, then you're probably in the mobility restriction area. Then what you might need to do from there is do some, some sort of self myofascial release 
which would be a fancy word for foam rolling of some sort. Now, all that does is create a pathway to allow for more stuff. From there, you might want to work some passive flexibility. So if we're talking about your hamstrings, for example, we might want to foam roll all the areas around the hamstring, your butt, your hamstrings, your IT band, your quads, your, your groin. And what you might find is that if you stand up, you might be able to touch your toes. But that's only temporary. Because in, you know, just like going to a chiropractor, a physical therapist, or any of these other, what they would call quote unquote, passive modalities, they don't stick. Right? So passive modalities have a place, but there isn't a stickiness factor to them. You have to follow up the passive modality, right? With a thing where like, I'm just laying on a foam roller, that's passive, with something active to get a stickiness factor to help facilitate the actual change that you're trying to do. The common things we talk, I think I talked about this with knees. The common thing with knee pain is you might have an ankle restriction or some a restriction in your hip. So if your ankles are limited, right? So the ankle mobility test is to take a, a ruler, put it against the wall. Your foot should be your, your longest toe for me is my second toe. Very long, Morton's toe. I think we had a conversation about feet the other day too, which we won't put on air. But that would be great. Long, a lot of feet conversations. <laughs> but you would take your foot, put it on four and a half, or let's say five inches to be in the middle, right? So we're looking for four and a half to five and a half inches of ankle flexibility, and then you try to touch your knee to the wall. So I put the ruler against the wall, put your toe at five inches, and then try to touch your knee to the wall. Can you touch your knee to the wall without your heel coming up? If no, you have an ankle mobility restriction. Now, if you can on your right and can on your left, then you're going to have some issues on one side over the other. If they're both equal, then you may not have tremendous issues, but your squat might look a little funky. Right? You might have that kind of butt up type squat where your hips come up first or you can't keep your torso as vertical as you would like in a squat. So two things happen there. Either you get forced into a bad position and your knees hurt or your back hurts because you're in a bad position. Hmm. So your ankles and your feet actually play a tremendous role in some of these pains and issues that you might have. So if our ankles is the first place we want to look so you can test them, we just gave you the, the avenue to test it. So what do I do if my ankles are restricted so I don't have good ankle mobility? I mean, the easiest thing to do, honestly, I mean, you can foam roll your calves. Obviously, you can foam roll the bottom of your feet. Okay, that might give you some more. But then you have to solidify that with some calf raises. And you could do calf raises with a straight leg or you can do calf raises with a bent leg. I would recommend doing both. And you want to do them in a position where your, the ball of your foot is on something and your heel has to go down and stretch. All right, so you want to have that your foot is elevated on like a brick or a block or a book or something, a stair, so that the ball of your foot is on the platform and your heel can get a full stretch in the bottom position. So now when my foot is going down and then I'm going at the top, my continually work that strength through length will allow me to solidify that position and improve my ankle mobility. And when I improve my ankle mobility, my torso gets more upright in my squat, I put less pressure on my knees, I'm in a better position. Okay. 
That makes sense so far? Yes. We're giving you like the the assessment 101 and the reasons why they all make sense. So people need, so. So the knees, the knees are in between of everything. So they get beat up. There's not really any, you know, I usually, when I'm talking to staff about it and different people, the knees are like the redheaded stepchild. They're in the middle of two very big players in the ankles and the hips. And they get beat up a lot and people think there's something wrong with their knees, but really there's something wrong with their ankles or their hips. Chante, the, the movement maestro, um, I got it from her and she got it from, I believe, Stop Chasing Pain, Dr. Perry Nicholson. The quote states, where you think it is, it ain't, by Dr. Ida Rolf. Simply stating, where you think the pain is, it isn't. It's somewhere else. And usually the, the idea is that you want to look up the chain or down the chain to the next joint. So like we, if we look from our knee and we look up the chain, we have our hip and we look down the chain, we have our, our ankle. So any of those joints may be causing the issue in my knee. Two days ago, three days ago in my physical education class, a lacrosse player came up to me and told me that she had lower back pain when she shoots a lacrosse ball a lot. Lacrosse, throwing a lacrosse ball is a very rotational sport. And it kind of goes overhead very much, very similar to throwing a baseball. I laid her on her back. I tried, did a few lower body assessments to see what her flexibility was. And she passed all the assessments. The next thing I had, I had is like, I had her raise her right arm overhead. She couldn't get it to the floor. She probably had two of my fist distance from the floor. So now every time that she tries to rotate from her mid spine, which you should when you throw or try to reach your arm overhead, she was compensating from her lower back. But she thinks she has a lower back problem. But really, she has a shoulder problem. I was going to guess that in my head. I'm just smiling yeah. how smart you've made me. Yeah. So when you look at things, you have to look at the body as a total thing. And like I said, where you think it is, it ain't. So if you're having hip or low back problems, it's probably not from your lower back. It could be from something else, right? So your lower back problem could be coming from your hips because that is the next thing down, or it could be coming from your shoulders. And your wrist problem could be coming from your shoulders. So my left wrist has been irritating me quite a bit since Christmas. It's much better now, but it's because my left shoulder doesn't have as much range of motion as my right shoulder. So when I do barbell movements overhead, in order to get the barbell in the right position so my left arm matches my right arm, I cheat it from my wrist. So instead of, let's say, if, if you were to take your arms overhead with both knuckles to the ceiling and your right arm goes back, but my left arm doesn't, you have to bend the wrist to get it back to be even. So then all the weight on the left side goes into your wrist, where all the one on the right side goes into your shoulder. Tori is mind blown right now. As she's wondering watching, if I should do it myself. If she's watching me demonstrate. <laughs> but you don't do anything barbell overhead, so no. it wouldn't really make a difference for you. So these things, these issues that might come up in the gym from your day-to-day -day weight training program can surface because of something else. And I think it's important to figure out what that something else is in order to address the pain. The first thing you have to do is stop doing the thing that causes you pain so your body can calm down a little bit and then try to figure out through an assessment, figure out what the issue might be, All right? 
So if like we talked about knees already, right? Knees and hips all go together, right? And ankles. And then lower back goes with hips and shoulders. So if our hips and more specifically our thoracic spine, right? So if our hips and thoracic spine are, are limited in some way, then we have to move excessively from our lower back, which your lower back is not supposed to move as much. It's supposed to be a stable structure. So then we start moving from different areas in there. Like I told you with the overhead thing for the low back and we get into those different positions. Somebody doing our type of workout style, say, or doing whatever type of programming and they have pain or an injury in one of these major areas, like you just kind of touched on it. Should they stop their whole workout to fix this one area? Or is there kind of stop working out entirely? Stop working out entirely. They're kind of a meet in the middle type of situation where you quote unquote rehab it and you're still doing some type of programming. Well, I think if you get a thorough assessment and you figure out what the underlying issue might be, then you can like people come here all the time, 10, 15 minutes before class. That 10 to 15 minutes before class can be utilized as an opportunity to create some of those changes. So if you come here and let's say you're having back pain when you run, you have back pain here and then we do the heel to butt test. So I lay you on your stomach and I try to get your heel to touch your butt and I do it passively. I had one this morning who she's like, hey, sometimes I have back pain. So I did a heel to butt test, couldn't get it there. I, had, I mean, I could touch her heel to her butt, but I had to put some pretty decent force into it. And she had a, you know, like a pretty good stretch in her quad when I did it. So that excessive tension in your quad, because your psoas, right, is your main hip flexor, attaches to your lower back, attaches to one of your vertebrae around your back. So it comes from your quad, which is the front, attaches to your vertebrae and your lower back. So if you have really tight quads and tight hip flexors, it can surface as lower back pain. And when we sit a long time, those muscles get kind of like a little shorter and a little weaker and all that kind of stuff. So we want to make sure that we reverse that with some strength and some flexibility in those ra those ranges. So there is a meet in the middle type thing. Now, if you're doing certain things in the gym, I would say for the time that you are rehabbing it, you can work around the injury. There are ways to take different avenues, whether that's either going lighter and working on tempo, working a few different exercises to strengthen. Let's say if, if two-legged squatting causes you back pain, but single leg squatting does not. Anytime that there's two legged squatting in the gym for the next four weeks or six weeks while you're rehabbing your, your pain and injury, do single leg variations, things that don't exacerbate the issue. So we don't want to do things that are going to set you back. I had this with a remote training client who every time push-ups would come up, it would bother their shoulders. Gave her a bunch of rehab stuff. She felt great, but she was going into an academy for uh, police. And every time she'd go to PT, she would do push-ups, and it would bring her right back to the the pain. And her reasoning was that she wouldn't, she couldn't stop doing them because it was required in her academy. Mm -hmm. So she was in like a rock and a hard place. So every time we'd get better, we'd get better, we'd get better. She'd go do a hundred push-ups, and then it would flare back up, and she'd get better. And it was just like this: get better, go back; get better, go back. So you and never end up getting better. Because you always go back to that baseline of pain and discomfort if you never give your body a chance to actually like settle down and relax a little bit. Does that answer your question? Was yeah. that a meet in the middle type thing? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I know a few people who 
just keep letting an issue be agitated, but right. probably don't take the right steps to fix it. Yeah. I mean, there's like, like I said, you have to first figure out through an assessment, figure out what is the actual underlying issue Two, stop doing the things that make it hurt. And three, like with those two things, like with an assessment and with the things that, that make it hurt, you would have a plan to then work around it and do things that would make it feel better. So in that step three, you're one, adjusting your or making modifications to the program to allow you to continue to work out and do something because people talk about that in terms of our mental health, which we'll talk about a little bit and being able to still move. Right. And then also being able to have a plan to make sure that the issue doesn't come back in six weeks when they try to go back to their normal type thing. And then even like another step would be when you do come back, you can't come back to the person you were before right away. It has to be a progressive change. You can't, let's say if deadlifting hurts your back and today you can deadlift 200 pounds, but it hurts. So I stopped doing deadlifting for a little bit and I change up the movement instead of deadlifting. Let's say if we did straight bar deadlifting, but trap bar deadlifting is okay. Shorter range of motion, a little different, a little bit more quad engagement, so on and so forth. And then I did all the rehab stuff that makes it feel better for four to six weeks. And then on week seven, day one, I come back and I deadlift and I try to deadlift 200 pounds. Bam. I felt great. What happened? Well, what happened was your body didn't know how to deadlift. Like the, that deadlifting 200 pounds, you have to reteach it how to deadlift. And you have to reteach it how to deadlift without pain. So then you have to go gradually to build back up to it. Now, it'll be much faster than it maybe was initially, but you can't jump right into this, the thing. You have to deadlift today and then see, how, see what happens at a very low volume, low weight, and see if we address the problem. And then if it's good, then you could progress again next week and then progress again next week and keep progressing until there is no more of an issue. Do you see the opposite, though, of that where people come in and they're going very easy or is that what's recommended coming back from it? You should be going very easy. Yeah. I don't know if there was such thing as nursing it too much. It may be after you've done the right amount of rehab on it. Well, I think there still has to be a level of progression to come back to. Right. So it can't be, I'm just going to deadlift 65 pounds forever now. It does have to be a progressive thing. And you do have to, you know, you can't quote unquote nurse it forever, but you have to do challenge it a little bit to find out where that threshold is because you've, you've now have a new threshold of what is acceptable for your body and what isn't. And then you have to continue to build that back up. Did you want to talk a little bit about mental health? Because you brought it up, I, I had the conversation with somebody just about that their mental health would be in the gutter without exercising. And I know we talked a little bit about anxiety and just understanding discomfort and pain, but there's obviously much more to mental health. Yeah, for sure. And I think, which is one of the reasons why I don't want people to be completely removed from the class atmosphere or completely adjust things and not work out. I think that's one of the biggest fears when people do personal training or different things like that. They're like, well, can I still do class? Can I still come to class and do these sorts of things? Yes, you can still come, but do them in a way. And when they're, like I said, when there's two-legged squatting, why keep doing it if it's going to bother you? Why not just switch to a single-leg squat for four to six weeks as we're fixing the thing and then come back to two-legged squatting afterwards? So I think it's got to be a conversation and a reflective piece where we can do both of those things and still keep your mental 
clarity and all that kind of stuff. Because I think part of the the mental aspect of it too, especially in our gym, is working out in the group and seeing that sort of part of it, as well as the actual movement of it. Because obviously in our in our setting, it's a group strength and conditioning facility. So the group dynamic, and especially now with COVID and not really always being in super social situations, it allows folks to get in, in an escape from solitude and escape from real life and escape from some of those things to be able to turn their brain off for a little bit and have a, a sense of stress relief so they can have that mental clarity or that mental relief or release so they can continue working on and doing whatever they do in the rest of their day. Are there like, what are the proven things for exercise itself though? Really quickly. I know we'll talk about it in a future episode, but does it, what does it release? What does it do to help your mental health exercising itself? Well, I think there's, there's some different views on it. I mean, it doesn't, it does like we talked about with anxiety and depression, right? There are feel good hormones and things that come out, you know, I've heard of a runner's high mm-hmm. and different things that happen when people exercise. And I think other than like those certain like chemical changes that might happen, I think there's also a sense of empowerment and self-confidence that comes from it, which also improves your overall mental self-esteem and, and self-efficacy and all those things that you feel good about and feel good about yourself. Like if you come in here and you deadlift, you know, we're going back to the deadlift, if you deadlift 200 pounds and you're, let's say, what, Tori weighs 110 pounds soaking wet. Like 120. Yeah, like 120. <laughs> um, so if she came in here and deadlifted 200 pounds today, that would be pretty empowering for her, right? Mm-hmm. She was super excited that she picked up 135 <laughs> the other day, right? Yeah, it was. She came in like jumping up and down really giddy. That she just left. She took like, you want to go see. Want to go see? Do it again. Want to go lift more? <laughs> so that sense of like that pride in what your body is capable of doing, I think, is also a boost to your self confidence and an empowerment factor that you can't get with certain other things. So that mental part of it, obviously, there's so many different things going on. Yes, there's some chemical things that happen, but also there's all these other kind of just like emotional, prideful things that happen that they all kind of boost and improve their, your mental, your mental health. Shifting over, I guess, to member question kind of pertaining a little bit to the earlier stuff we talked about cramping. I don't know. Do you ever see that people might fixate too much on a cramp or soreness and mistake it for injury? Or is that maybe a sign that it's leading toward injury? Well, cramps and soreness doesn't necessarily lead to injury, but I do think that folks, should understand the difference between soreness, pain, injury, because there's a different idea. If I'm doing a certain exercise, it's going to burn a little bit and be a little uncomfortable, but there's a different pain from a muscle burn. If I'm doing a lot of squats versus a knee pain, because I might be an underlying injury. So I think understanding the differences between those things and what they feel like you know, when I used to coach football, that used to be a common question for high schoolers. And I still have this question for people all the time, like when I'm doing personal training. Like, is it uncomfortable or does it hurt? And where does it hurt? And, you know, some people are like, well, it kind of hurts here, but I'm not sure. Let me, let's try it again and we'll see. A lot of us don't have this reflectiveness and, and have like a really in tune process with our bodies and how they work and things, what they feel like. As you develop more and as you exercise more and as you do things more, you start to become more in tune and with what's happening inside of your body. So it allows us some 
a little bit more clarity on what those things feel like. And I, I know what the difference might personally, I know the difference between like in my quads, like if it's a muscle soreness or a pain from certain things like that are exercise related versus a pain, like something might be wrong. And you have to be able to just differentiate the two to be able to know the difference. And I think people do get fixated because we talked about before with the anxiety, depression type thing, a little bit of pain and discomfort triggers that anxiety potential if you are already an anxiety kind of driven person. So if I do have like a cramp or a muscle fatigue or a muscle soreness or different things like that, I start to be nervous or anxious that something might be wrong. And then I fixate on it and then it tr- it could potentially turn into something because then if I continue to fixate on something, then maybe I'm not doing something as well focused or whatever I might be. So then it can turn into some bad movement patterns and things like that. Um, what causes cramping? A whole bunch of things. People say potassium, water, all that jazz. I mean, it can, we had this conversation about the Boilermaker the other day, actually with someone in class. He talked about, he runs four to six miles all the time in training and doesn't really drink a lot of water and does certain things like this. And then on Boilermaker day, he chugs a bunch of water beforehand and he cramps up. Well, not before, but the night before. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I got to get, you know, I got to get hydrated. I got a carb load. I got to do this, that, and the other thing. But he never does it any other time. He runs six miles on a regular basis as a training. The Boilermaker, if you don't know, if you're not from the area, is a 9.3 road race. 9.3 miles. And he does six miles all the time. And he never has any issues. The day before the Boilermaker, he, he car- potentially carb loads and he drinks a lot of water. And then he cramps up like crazy through the Boilermaker. Why would he do that? Because that's what people tell you you have to do. But he's not paying attention to all the other six miles. Exactly. So don't do things that are drastically different when you're going to do a race or a competition or different things or before your workout. I think it came up a little bit in a conversation as well. Like does pre-workout work? And does does pre-workout a thing is all these caffeine things. So caffeine does work. It's actually a banned substance on U.S. Olympic Committee stuff. So if you have too much caffeine, not, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. Because caffeine is, it helps us, you know, transfer oxygen better. It helps us with endurance events better and so on and so forth. So the caffeine and things that are there make you more alert, make you, it's a stimulant, right? So it does all those things that help you exercise more and have a better, you know, better reaction time, all those sorts of things that are potential for performance. But if you have too much of it, right, it, in the eyes of the Olympics, it's considered a performance enhancing drug because it's too much. Now, in terms of like general fitness, if you need to do a pre-workout every day, then there might be some underlying other things that we want to tackle first. Most importantly, sleep. Another conversation with a member asking about why they always feel super tired and fatigued. And then I asked her how much she sleeps a night and she said between four to five hours a night. And we know that the minimum that we're looking for is what, Tori? Eight, seven? Seven to nine. Okay. Right, eight is the sweet. I was right in the middle. Right in the <laughs> middle. So we want seven to nine hours of sleep. So if you're consistently getting five and then you're like, oh, I'm so tired. And I, I combat that tiredness with this false sense of energy with loads of caffeine, then I'm going to end up in some imbalances. And over time, my muscles, things are going to break down. Sleep is when we recover. So if you're injured, or if you have other things that are going on and you're not getting adequate sleep, those things are never going to get better either. 
Can you build up an immunity to caffeine just like you can with like ibuprofen and Tylenol? Can it stop working? Well, I think like any drug or anything that you do a little bit may not feel the same. It may not give you that same alertness, the same whatever. And just like anything, if you stop taking caffeine, if you've ever tried, if you're a coffee drinker or you do a lot of stimulated drinks, if you try to come off of it, you'll get that crazy headache, migraine type stuff because your body doesn't know what to do with it. So obviously with anything you will need to, you do build a tolerance towards it for sure. I did that once with iced tea. Unsweetened iced tea has almost as much as coffee. For sure. Tea is cascade. I felt like I needed like a step program after that because it was tough. Yeah. And and you're also, you said unsweetened? Unsweetened. Oh, okay. I was going to say, you're getting the sugar stuff. No, I don't drink anything sugary like that. It doesn't appetize me. People tell me I'm gross because it, to them, it tastes horrible. I know you re- t- you, re- t- you reposted Tyler's thing about sugar the other day. I was like, oh, I did. Time. I think I misunderstood. <laughs> Why? Because I took it almost in a sense of maybe how he wrote in his caption about sugar is sugar. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so many people are so concerned with like, oh, I, I won't have this sugar, but I'll have this sugar because it's in something fancier. It's in something healthier. So you didn't miss it. You didn't misinterpret it. Okay. I, so I the idea I is, I think we've talked about this before too, but junk food is junk food, whether it's Justin's organic peanut butter cups or Reese's peanut butter cups. There's a big scandal over those, wasn't there? I don't know. Maybe. I think because they weren't healthier than Reese's. Of course they're not healthier. It's a peanut butter <laughs> cup. It's chocolate and peanut butter and sugar. What's the difference? I know. And so, I mean, the difference is between, you know, I think someone was, I, I saw a post somewhere talking about agave syrup versus high fructose corn syrup. It's like literally the same thing. So I think we get caught up in this idea of maple syrup is better because it's from a tree and honey is better because it's from bees. And yes, they do have certain health benefits. Honey does have some certain health benefits over refined table sugar. But if we eat it in excess, just like if we eat table sugar in excess, you're going to have some negative side effects. And, you know, people are like, well, I can have dates and I can have raisins and I can have this, that, and the other thing. All of those things are super high in sugar as well. So it's just being conscious of the things that we're putting into our body and making sure that those things are in alignment with what we want to do. And whether it's a paleo brownie or a paleo cupcake or a regular cupcake or a keto cupcake or a vegan cupcake, it's still a cupcake. Cookie's a cookie. A cookie is a cookie. That's it for me. I think I'm going to save some of mine for when we have some guests. Go more in depth with them. Do you have anything else? No, I think that's pretty good. A little shorty this week. We are very excited. So we are holding back a little bit because we are very excited for some future guests and some things that are coming up. And we just want to give you, make sure that we're still putting out stuff. I think I talked about this in my own personal newsletter, which you can check out at amacurio.com if you're interested in getting the newsletter. But Seth Godin, Master Marketer, talks about when you want to do something and create action, you have to put yourself on the hook. He His reference for on the hook, you can find out one of his books and look it up if you want to figure out what it means. But when, you, when you're on the hook for something, you you hold yourself accountable to do it. And I've been working diligently to hold myself accountable to doing things. Most importantly, this podcast, my newsletter, uh, social media posts, different things that I say that I want to be good at, or I say that I want to continue to do, but it's very easy to find excuses not to do them. So I have to keep myself on the hook. And I know Tori's shaking her head because her newsletter is one of those things that 
she started I'm writing and, didn't, <laughs> and didn't do for a while. And I think I haven't seen one in like three weeks. Probably. It's been a month. It's been a it's month. Been a, a month and two days. So what I did for my newsletter is I told everybody that it's going to come out every Tuesday. So that put me on the hook for making it come out every Tuesday. Right. And this podcast is going to get released every Monday. So if, if Monday, if it's not ready, like I work my ass off to try to get it out there, even if it comes late on Monday, it's going to be out on Monday. Even if I record the podcast Monday morning, I'm going to edit it and put it out before Monday night. That's so, how you started it. Yeah. So we have to have this on the hook mentality because we never want to miss twice. And it allows us to keep ourselves accountable to doing the thing that's going to help us find our rhyme. Wrap that up nicely, didn't I? Mm-hmm. All right. So that's it for now. And you guys have a great day, great week, and we'll see you next time. Bye.